Dustin took care of half my introduction for me. I had reached out to Dustin because I wanted to talk to him about the next series we're going to do, which is 1 Timothy. And um, because I work anywhere from probably four to eight weeks ahead, in other words, you know, when I stand up here and teach, usually what I'm teaching is stuff I've worked on is maybe as long as eight weeks prior. And um, I have to do that just to kind of keep up. So I finished up all my study in 1 Kings and started working on 1 Timothy, and I called him to talk about something. He said, well, you know, um, Christmas is coming up, and I'll be real honest, I had completely forgotten. Didn't even enter my mind. <laughs> so I went, and I'll be real honest, my head just sank. I was like, oh, I do not like Christmas time. <laughs> I love Christmas, but when it comes to the series, um, you know, there's only so many Christmas passages you can turn to. And I've been preaching now for 30 years. How many Christmases are in 30 years? So every time we get to Christmas, I'm just kind of like, oh, I don't, oh, what do we do now? You know? And so I'll be real honest. When he told me that, I'm like, I wish he hadn't mentioned it. I wish he would just let it go and I showed up. In, you know, Christmas time here and went, oh, I guess we're not doing a Christmas series because then I wouldn't have to worry about it. And he's right. He doesn't bring anything to the table on that. He usually says, Mike, what are we doing for Christmas? So I was really, my heart just kind of thinking like, oh, all right. Yeah, we really need to. It's, I mean, there's, we should. We should do Christmas series at Christmas time. It's the most important holiday, if you want to call it that, that we celebrate as, as Christians, that and Easter, right? And so I said, okay, well, let me give it some thought. And to be real honest, the way the process worked was I thought, you know, let me just go read. I'm just going to go read. I'm going to go back to the stories. I'm going to go back to the Christmas stories. Just read. So I started praying, and I asked God, I said, look, you've got to help me here because I don't want to repeat stuff that we've always done. And um, I don't, it doesn't have to be new and unique. It just, I think when you approach the scriptures, it ought to be fresh. So I started praying about it, and I started reading through Matthew and Mark, because those, those are the only two Gospels that the uh, Christmas story is presented in. And something came to mind as I was reading them. And that's that each of the Gospels has a focus, a theme. And as I, you know, I kind of know that. So you look at Matthew's Gospel and you see a theme, and Mark, you see a theme, and John. And so I'm thinking about that theme, theme, and I'm looking at the two Christmas stories as Matthew told it and as Luke told it. I began to see something there, and it was that they had, there's, different, there's, there's differences in their stories. They're complementary meaning they tell the story and they complement each other, but there's details in Matthew that are not in Luke and there's details in Luke that are not in Matthew. And I began to wonder why. And as I looked at those, I began to realize that Matthew focuses on very, something very specific in the, in the um, events that he chose to include. Luke is very different and chose to focus on some other things. And Basically, what it amounted to was Matthew focuses more on the kingship of Jesus. Luke focuses more on the humanity of Christ. He goes into great detail on the birth and really tries to show that it was natural, that this was God who came down in flesh. And so he shares a bunch of stories, even about Jesus' childhood, and even says that he had to grow in wisdom and stature, which lends itself to God, or Christ being the God-man, the man who came down in flesh. And in addition to that, all four of the Gospels, and Matthew and Luke specifically in the birth narratives, stress his Messiahship. So I went, oh, okay. 
We're going to look at Christ as Messiah, Christ as King, and Christ as the God-Man. We'll focus primarily on the birth narratives. In fact, Dave will, I think, focus more on Matthew's events there. And there's some great things in there, some neat things in there that you might even miss. Um, as to even explains why the order of the temptations are different between the two and why the genealogies are different, because they reflect those themes. So it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm excited about it. I'm going to cover Jesus the Messiah this morning. So we'll um, spend a portion of that time in the birth narratives very briefly, but then we'll also do some other things. Uh, my pattern for this morning is going to be this. We're going to look at those some statements made in the birth narratives. Then we're going to go into a definition of what it means for Jesus to be Messiah. And then I'm going to go into the Old Testament. And that's going to be the pattern we're going to try to follow through all three of these. Um, so let's go ahead and, and do that. Turn to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Matthew and Luke both announce Jesus as Messiah at his birth. That's important to them. That's a, I would argue that that's probably the greatest theme in the scriptures, is that Jesus is the Christ. And so we look at what Matthew says. Turn there to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. Right out of the gates, the very first thing that Matthew says about Christ is this. The record of the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Your versions may say Jesus Christ there. Contrary to what many people believe, Jesus' last name is not Christ. If we were to read this properly, what you would see is it's a declaration of who he is. It's his title. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah. Now those words are interchangeable. Messiah comes from the Greek word for anointed. And then Christo, Greek term, is the equivalent to that. It also means anointed. And so you see those words interchanged. In fact, some, that's why some English translations will render this as Jesus Christ. Others will render it as the Messiah because they're interchangeable. It's referring to the exact same thing. So when you hear Jesus Christ, you should be thinking Jesus the Christ. Jesus the Messiah, not Jesus' first name, Christ, last name. If you jump down into verse 16 of Matthew's story, this is even a little clearer because he specifically states it that way. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called Messiah. So there we see it reflect, reflected a little better. But again, most of the times when you see Jesus in the scriptures, he'll either be referred to as Jesus Christ or Christ Jesus. And again, it's because Christ is the title. It's his role. It's who he is. Now, I want you to turn to Luke because Luke does the same thing for us here. So we see that in Matthew, right out of the gates, when he begins to tell the Christmas story, starts with Jesus is Messiah. Jesus is Christ. We jump down into Luke's narrative here. Luke kind of starts as a historian, and so he kind of starts at the very beginning of the story. So he starts with John the Baptist first, because John the Baptist is there to announce the coming of Christ. And so it makes sense that Luke would start there. But when Luke actually gets to the birth narrative, he does something very similar to what Matthew does. Look at chapter 2. We're going to jump down into uh, verse 8. Chapter 2, starting in verse 8. 
In the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields and keeping watch over their flocks by night. And the angel of the Lord suddenly stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all people. For today, in the city of David, there is, or there has been born for you a Savior who is what? Christ the Lord. This will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there appeared with the angels a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. And so we find Matthew, or I'm sorry, Luke here, stressing as well the fact that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. In fact, we actually see him repeat this within the birth narrative again. It's a little bit later, but it still is contained with what I'm going to refer to as the Christmas story or the birth narrative. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 21. Jesus was actually presented at the temple. And when we look at that, we see a declaration of Jesus' Messiahhood as well. Once again, chapter 2, verse 21. Read those with me. And when the eight days had passed before his circumcision, his name was then called Jesus, the name given to the angel before he was consecrated or conceived in the womb. And when the days for their purification, according to the law of Moses, were completed, they brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male that opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord, and to offer a sacrifice according to what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. And there was a, a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, He was a priest, apparently. And this man was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. He was looking for the redemption of Israel that God had promised in the Old Testament. And look at this, verse 26. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before what? Before he had seen the Lord's Messiah, the Lord's Christ. And he came in the spirit into the temple, and when his parents saw um, the child, or saw or brought in the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, then he took him, Jesus, into his arms, and he blessed God and said, "Lord, you are releasing your bondservant to depart in peace according to your word." Meaning, I can go now because I've seen the Christ. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all people, a light of revelation to the Gentiles. And glory of your people Israel. So we find Simeon in the temple. One of the reasons why Luke focuses on this, I believe, is partly, as Dustin will get to, focuses on the humanity of Christ, which is important. But also because it's a declaration of the Messiahship, Jesus' role as the Christ. doesn't stop there because Luke then records another very similar thing in the same context here. Look at verse 33. And his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his merry mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and the rise of many in Israel, and for a sign to be opposed, and a word which will pierce even your own soul to the end that thoughts from many hearts will be revealed. Now here's the second event. And there was a prophetess named Anna, the daughter of Phanuel and the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage. Or, uh, yeah, seven years after her marriage. And then, as a widow to the age of 84, she never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayer. 
And that very moment she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak to him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Israel. Now she doesn't refer to him as the Christ here, but she knew very well what the Old Testament taught, which was that God would send a Messiah who would redeem Israel. And so what this tells us is that she went out from this point forward telling people, Jesus is now here. Messiah is now here to restore and to redeem Israel. And so we see in Luke's, Luke as he tells this story of the birth of Jesus that he also focuses on Jesus as Messiah. So we have these two birth narratives. We have Matthew's and we have Luke's. And both of them begin, as they start to tell that story, they begin with a declaration that Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is Messiah. So now the question becomes, what does that really mean? What does it mean for Jesus to be Messiah? We don't, I mean, aside from being Christians, the the world around us, I don't know that they necessarily understand what that means. They know it's Jesus Christ, but again, I think a lot of them just simply think that Christ is his last name. You'll hear the word Messiah, but they usually think of a Jewish thing, and it is. I don't know that the world necessarily fully understands that. We do typically because when we give our lives to Christ and we're steeped in the Bible and we learn and we grow, we kind of get an idea for it. But I want to at least go over this a bit. The word Messiah comes from the Hebrew word that means to anoint. Essentially, the best way to to look at that word Messiah means the anointed one or God's anointed one. And when you look at how that word is used throughout the scriptures, more often than not, it's not used in a messianic sense. It's a word that refers to things like um, anointing um, objects for worship or anointing people like priests or prophets. And, and what that symbolizes is that those individuals, whether it's objects that have been anointed for worship, excuse me, or whether it's been people like priests and prophets have been anointed, the anointing is God's way of setting them aside and designating them to be used for his purposes. They are now dedicated to him to be used for his purposes. But in addition to that, one of the things that this anointing of oil symbolizes is that when it comes to individuals like priests and prophets, that they are now endowed with the Holy Spirit. It doesn't mean the Holy Spirit indwells them like he does us, but they come with the power and the influence of the Holy Spirit. And so that's the idea of anointing as we look throughout the Old Testament. Now what's interesting about that is that term is applied to a specific individual in the Old Testament that's prophesied. And he is referred to as the anointed, or the anointed one. And as I said, most of the time when that word occurs, it's used in, in a non-Messianic way. However, there are, very, there are two very specific places where the word is used to speak of a single individual that is the anointed one. One of them is Psalm chapter 2. Go ahead and turn there just briefly. Psalm chapter 2. Psalm chapter 2 is basically a... Um, eschatological psalm it is really looking more towards the end times and it is a play of sorts where there are four scenes and there are four people speaking and we find as we look at this that the nations in verse 1 are in an uproar and they all align themselves against God but then God does something interesting if you look at what he says what it says here Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of earth take their stand. The rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed. And the way to read that is against 
his Messiah. It is a specific reference to the king in this psalm who will sit on his throne, judge the earth, and rule over it. So that is a very specific, dedicated reference to the Messiah. Daniel, we covered this as well. You don't have to necessarily turn there, but Daniel chapter 9, verse 24, 25, 26, you'll remember, when it comes to Daniel's 70th week, he mentions in that text that in the middle of that week, the Messiah will be cut off. It's a reference to Christ. And so he mentions... Um, or I'm sorry, not in the middle. Let's go back. Let's actually go back and read that real briefly here. Might be better if we do that. Chapter 9, verse 24, I'll start with. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people and your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness and seal up the visions and prophecy and anoint the most holy place. So you are to know and discern that the issue of the decree to restore and rebuilding the Jews or rebuilding Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there will be seven weeks and sixty-two weeks. It will be built again in the plaza and the moat, even in the times of distress. I had referenced the middle of the week there. That's the abomination of desolation. That's not um, Christ being cut off. But then verse 26. Then after sixty-two weeks, the Messiah will be cut off. That happened at Christ's crucifixion. That happens before Daniel's 70th week, actually, beginning. It was, again, it was the abomination of desolation. My mistake. That that happens in the middle there. But basically, he references the Messiah twice in this passage. One is what we saw with Jesus' crucifixion. So, what we find here is that this term, Messiah, is a specific title or designation given to an individual that God would send to Israel. Now, the other thing we have to draw into this is that throughout the Old Testament, this individual is referred to by a variety of other terms and other passages. In other words, Moses refers to him as a prophet. So not every time we see the Messiah in the Old Testament is he called the Messiah. He's called a branch. He's called a prophet. He's called a priest. There are other terms that are used, but they all refer to the exact same individual. But again, we find in two places at least... Psalm chapter 2 and Daniel, that the term Messiah is very specifically applied to that individual. That's why when we get to the first century, the Jews were looking for a Messiah. They were looking for this one. I want you to turn to John, I'm sorry, turn to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. You remember John the Baptist, he was the forerunner to Jesus. His job was to announce the coming of Messiah and prepare Israel for the coming of the Christ by calling him to repentance. Well, the authorities didn't like that, so they arrested John, threw him in prison. And while John is in prison, an interesting interaction happens here with some messengers to send to Jesus with a question. Look at the first three verses there. Matthew chapter 11. When Jesus had finished giving instructions to the twelve disciples, he departed from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John, while imprisoned, heard of the works of Christ, he sent word to his disciples, or by his disciples, and he said, Are you the expected one? Another way to translate that is, Are you the coming one? 
the one who is to come? Or shall we look for someone else? So there's John in prison, and he brings up a question. And this is a question that essentially was what it was in the mind of most Jews of the time. When will this coming one, when will the expected one finally get here? Now, I'm not going to get into reasons why John may have struggled with this to some degree. But the reality of it is, he asked the question, are you the one that we are expecting? There was a great expectation within that first century that Messiah would soon arrive. And what's interesting is if you go back and you look at writings from some of the Essenes and some of the others, even the Dead Sea Scrolls, prior to the first century, as you read them, you can see that there is more and more writings that are expectant of the Messiah to arrive. God was doing something among the Jewish people where you could actually see their excitement or their expectations were growing thinking that the Messiah was going to arrive soon. Now part of that might have been because they were being oppressed by Rome. And so by this very nature you would expect them to begin to cry out to the Lord, where is the one who's supposed to rescue and redeem us from our enemies? But whatever the reason was, and I believe it was God working within them, there was a tremendous amount of excitement and expectation by the Jews in that first century. If we look at history, we see that that's the case. The other thing we kind of see in history, there wasn't a whole lot of agreement as to what he would be. There's a lot of discussion and disagreements by the Jews. Is he going to be some big political ruler that's going to overthrow Rome? Is he going to set up his kingdom immediately right now? How is this all going to work? But the excitement and the expectation was Messiah should arrive soon. And so they were waiting for this one. They referred to him as Messiah. So the Jews were expectantly waiting. And why is that? Well, because it's clearly spelled out in the Old Testament. God's plan has always been to redeem us, both Israel and Gentiles, through the Messiah. That's the way it's always been planned. I want to go ahead and look at the Old Testament here. It's kind of like a funnel. And what I mean by that is, it kind of starts very broad. But the further you go and the further you proceed through the Old Testament, God provides more information about who this individual is going to be. And it's just like this giant funnel to where we get to the end and there's a lot of details that are provided to help narrow down what that Messiah is going to look like, who he's going to be, where he's going to be from. That's the way God's revelation always is. God's revelation is progressive in nature. More information is revealed over time. The prophets only understood a certain amount about Jesus himself and who he would be. Jesus had to reveal more. We know more today than the Jews knew back then because we have a New Testament. God's um, revelation is is just that. It's progressive. And so we see that when we look at the Old Testament. So I want to kind of just do a quick, I'll call it overview, survey of Messiah in the Old Testament. The place we have to start is all the way back in the beginning. Genesis chapter 3. If we go back there, Dustin and I have mentioned this before with a big fancy theological word. It's called the Proto-Evangelium. What that means is the first gospel. Genesis chapter 3. After the fall, after Adam and Eve had fallen into sin and brought curse of death and sin upon the world. God is going through now 
um, an address to each of the parties involved, beginning with the serpent, and, and then with Eve, and then with Adam. And as he's talking to the serpent, he pronounces this. The Lord, verse 14, The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, in other words, deceived Eve and brought all of creation into condemnation, because you've done that, Cursed are you more than all the cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed, your descendant, and her descendant, her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. What's happening there? It's a bit cryptic. The reason we believe this is a reference to Christ is because of this interplay between the concept of the seed, be seen between those of Satan, if you will, and those of man. And essentially what God lays out here is that a time will come where a descendant of man, Adam and Eve, will bruise your head and he'll bruise your heel. There's going to be a conflict between Satan and this one. Doesn't give a lot of details. We know now, as we look at the rest of the scriptures, that exactly what happened was Jesus was on the cross, and by the cross and his resurrection, he crushed Satan, put an end to his power and authority ultimately. But in the process, he was bruised. Is that not true? He was put on a cross and crucified. But what we find here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 14 and 15 is the first reference to God's plan to use a seed. We could argue this here could could be understood as any descendant of Eve, but I believe it's a reference to just a single seed. But the idea here is that God, as far back as Genesis chapter 3, immediately after the fall, announced his redemptive plan, that it would involve the descendant of Adam and Eve, literally crushing the head of Satan, but he'd be bruised in the process. Now, that picture gets expanded a bit. Genesis chapter 12. We get to the call of Abraham. And we see that God sort of gives more information about this. And he uses some similar language in in some respects. Look at Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. God reaches out, reaches down into this man named Abraham, who is a pagan, living in a pagan land. He wasn't a, a necessarily a, a God-fearing righteous man. It doesn't appear that he knew God, but God reaches down and he says, Go forth from your country, Genesis 12, verse 1, and from your relatives and from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. He's talking about building Israel there. And I will bless you and make your name great, so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the one who you curse, or who curses you, I will curse. And in you, the families of the earth will be blessed. So the Lord says, he's now going to bless the families of the earth through this one man, Abraham. So we now see it goes from the seed of Eve to the seed of Abraham. Jump down to chapter 22, verse 15. We're still talking about Abraham here. 22, verse 15 the Lord, is, the Lord had promised Abraham a son, and it was through that son whom he would bless the earth. It was Isaac. But then after Isaac is born, the Lord says, go sacrifice him for me. It's a test for Abraham. The test was essentially, are you going to trust me on this? I promised you that I would bless the earth through Isaac. I'm now asking you to go 
sacrifice them. How am I going to do that if you sacrifice them? Are you going to trust me on this? So it's a test. Will Abraham believe God? Accept his promises that he would indeed bless the earth, all the families, make his name great, build him into a great nation through Isaac? Well, we'll find out because I'm going to take Isaac up and do what the Lord told me to do. That was an expression of faith. He believed the Lord in that. He was called righteous because of it. But look what happens. Genesis chapter 22, verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven, and he said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed I will greatly bless you, and I will greatly multiply, look at this, your seed as the stars of heavens, as the sand which is on the seashore, and in your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies, And in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to the young man. He rose and he went on to Beersheba. The Lord actually provided a sacrifice. And so what we find in this verse is the Lord says, he went from Adam and Eve to Adam, I mean to Abraham, to now Abraham's seed, Isaac. And even later, and we won't cover this, but even later, it's narrowed down to his son, We've got Jacob and then Isaac, and it just goes all the way down the line. And so what we end up with here is this narrowing of God is going to send somebody. God is going to provide a seed. God is is going to accomplish his redemptive plan through this one individual. And so it keeps kind of getting narrowed down through which genealogical lines that that's going to happen. Now... By the time we get to the Exodus, we get even more information and it gets narrowed down to some degree, not necessarily geologically, or genealogically, but in terms of who this individual would be, what role he would fulfill. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy chapter 18, we have Moses talking to Israel. Jump down into verse 15 of chapter 18. This is Moses' declaration. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you and from your countrymen, and you shall listen to him. This is according to all that the Lord asked. I'm sorry, this is according to all that you asked of the Lord your God in Horeb on the day of the assembly, saying, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God. Let me not see his great fire anymore, or I will die. The Lord said to me, they have spoken well. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen like you, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them, and all that I command him. It shall come about that whoever will not listen to my words, which he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. And so what Moses prophesies here is that God would raise up a prophet like him. Now, what we have to understand is that It might not be super clear here who that prophet is, but in the book of Acts, twice we're told that that prophet, the one that Moses was talking about, is Christ. So we have the benefit of hindsight. We've been told Moses was talking about Jesus Christ. But all the Jews would have known at this point is that God is going to send a prophet like Moses to us. And so again, what we find is that we get this funnel effect where it goes from seed of Eve to a seed of Abraham, to a seed of Isaac and Jacob. And now that seed, he's also going to be a prophet. One like Moses. Now you have to remember, Moses here was unique among all the prophets. He led Israel. Significant leader. And so the Jews were waiting for someone like Moses to come and to restore them and to redeem them. 
gets a little bit narrower when we get to the promised land. When we finally get to the promised land, turn to Second Samuel with me. When we finally get to the promised land and the Israelites get settled and God raises up Saul to sort of establish them in the land and then he raises up David to, to serve as their king. And then God makes this promise to David that even narrows who this Messiah is going to be even further. Second Samuel chapter 7, we've already read through this, but I'm going to do it again. We studied Second Samuel not too long ago. We've referenced it on multiple occasions in our study of First Kings, but... 2 Samuel chapter 7, verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up for you a descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him as I took it away from Saul when I removed um, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and all this vision. So Nathan spoke to David. Now, when you combine other elements from the rest of the Old Testament, what some of the prophets have said, we understand as we look at this passage as what many refer to as a dual fulfillment passage, meaning that part of this is to be understood as Solomon meaning an immediate descendant. But we know that oftentimes prophecies like that have an immediate fulfillment, but they also are foreshadowing of something else to come in the future, and that's what we refer to as the second or the double fulfillment of that. And so this has always been interpreted here, even by the Jews, that God was going to send somebody in the line of David who would be a king... And they equated that king with the prophet that Moses had talked about and on. So what we find here is is another furthering of this concept of the Messiahship in the Old Testament, which is that he would not just be a prophet and come through Abraham's line, but he would now come through and be a descendant of David's line, and he would be a king like David. But what we see here is that this king would rule forever. He'd be an eternal king. And so now we get an even better picture of who this individual is. And you can see now how when we look at our series here, we've got not just Jesus as a prophet, but Jesus as a king, which David will cover next week. And then we'll see it even further narrowed down to being Emmanuel. So we can see this, this sharpening and this focusing of the concept of Messiahship in the Old Testament. It happens again when we get close, or when we get close to the exile Israel wasn't behaving. We all know that. And so when Israel is getting threatened to be taken off into captivity, a number of the prophets talk about the one who will ultimately rescue them in the end. Isaiah and Micah both do that. Let's turn to Micah, if you would. Micah chapter 5. We get some really interesting specifics here. Micah chapter 5, verse 1. Now muster yourselves in troops, daughters of troops. They have laid siege against us. With a rod they, have, they will smite the judge of Israel on the cheek. But as for you, Bethlehem, to, little, to be among the clans of Judah, meaning you're a small little town, 
but, you, but from you one will go forth from me to be ruler in Israel. So what it's saying there is God will raise up a king out of Bethlehem, an unlikely place, and he will be ruler in Israel. His going forth are from long ago, from the ages of eternity. Well, that's interesting. That's a reference to the, the fact that this king that would come out of Bethlehem would be from eternity past. The only thing that could be is a reference to the eternal nature of this king. Meaning, he, didn't, he wasn't just created. He's existed from eternity past. Therefore, he will give them up until the time when he who sits is, or um, when she who sits in labor has born a child, which means he will come as a child as well. Then the remainder of his brethren who will return to the sons of Israel, he'll unify, he'll bring Israel back together, and he will raise, arise, and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. He'll do all this in the name of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord is God, and. They will remain because at that time he will be great to the ends of the earth. This one will be our peace. And so we see all these interesting things here about who this Messiah is going to be. He'll be this eternal king that will be born to a woman in the little town of Bethlehem who will rise up, become king of Israel, will unify, bring Israel back, and will ultimately bring in peace and rule to the ends of the earth. That's a lot of details to go from just, David, I'm going to raise up a king in your line to now more specifics. Isaiah gets even more specific. I want you to turn to Isaiah. We'll go to chapter 7. Chapter 7, verse 14. I'll start with verse 13. Then he said, Listen now, O house of Israel, or house of David, is it too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men that you will try the patience of my God as well? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin, a young, young lady, we interpret that though as being a, an actual virgin virgin, will give you a virgin, will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? God with us. What Isaiah prophesies here is the incarnation. That the one that will be raised up, born to a woman, and remember, Micah told us that that will be the king born in Bethlehem. This is further clarification here, that the one that is born in Bethlehem to the woman, to the virgin, will be God with us. God who has come to us. It's a reference to the incarnation. He will be God. Jump down to chapter 9, verses 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence at the um, gladness of harvest as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and on on the staff of their shoulders the rod of their oppressor at the battle of Midian. For every root of the booted warrior in the, tum- or in the battle tumult and the cloak rooted in blood will be for the burning fuel of fire. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God. These are things that are reserved for God. Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to his increase of his government or of his peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to to uphold it with justice and righteousness 
From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. We get more information on who this is. Wonderful counselor, mighty God, the Father. What we ultimately see is, again, Isaiah is repeating what Micah said and telling us that this Messiah will be God in the flesh, born to a woman in Bethlehem. Talk about specifics. The other thing that we learn, we won't cover this, the other thing we learn is that Isaiah chapter 53 that ultimately he would be a suffering servant that his purpose, the purpose of this Messiah would be to ultimately be struck down to pay for the sins of many so that he might redeem and restore, justify them and bring salvation to them. That's what the Old Testament revealed about this Messiah. Now again, there was a bit of confusion. Much like within the Christian church, we don't always expect that every single Christian have a perfect knowledge of the scriptures and, and that we know that, that uh, we struggle. The word is there. We read it the best we can to interpret it. But some Christians don't pay attention. They just sort of show up for church on Sundays and maybe they don't study themselves. And so within the church we have all kinds of confusion sometimes. Barna and Pew have revealed some of that. Same thing with the Jews in the first century. Not all of them read their scriptures. So they had all kinds of varying ideas of who this Messiah would be. In fact, many of their opinions probably were of the nature of what they've been, what the, you know, has been floated around. And so not all of them could sit down and say, huh, you know what, okay, this Messiah is going to be and go through what we just did and say, oh, and he's going to be God in flesh. We'll just wait for that. So there was a lot of confusion. Okay? Um, that happens. But it was all there. They could have known. They should have known. But what we do know is that they were anxiously awaiting this one that had been prophesied to them. And at a minimum, what they did understand was that he was going to come and rescue and restore Israel, take his throne, and rule. And they expected that to be forever. So the good news, the good news and the reason that we celebrate the birth of Christ today is because Messiah has come. Because Messiah has come. If there's a single theme that permeates all four of the Gospels, it's this one. Matthew focuses more on the kingship of Jesus. Matthew, I'm sorry, Mark and, and um, John focus very heavily on this concept. Jesus being Messiah, Jesus being the Son of God. But it is permeated through all four of the Gospels. I'm just going to do a quick run-through of each of the Gospels. I'm going to do some rapid-fire Bible reading for you. I just kind of want you to listen to it, so we're not flipping a lot of pages, but just listen. We've already looked into Matthew, where Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, right out of the gate he says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, what? The son of Abraham. He says Jesus is the Christ. We jump down into verse 18. I've got some of these written down myself, but not all of them, but... Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. Notice he says, the birth of Jesus the Christ was as follows. And then he tells us the story of Jesus being born as a baby and even relates some of what we've just read in the Old Testament. When his mother Mary, who had been betrothed to Joseph, Joseph, before they came together, she was a virgin. She was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man, not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly, but 
When he considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife, for the child whom has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. He is divine. He is God. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Just like Isaiah told us. Now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. And so what we find is that the Gospel of Matthew, he repeats the idea that Jesus is Messiah, and even takes us to the Old Testament to say, this is a fulfillment. This is what you've all been waiting for. Mark um, does something very similar. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is how he starts chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's whole entire gospel is focused on two things. Jesus as the Christ and Jesus as the Son of God. He spends the first half, the first eight chapters, providing evidence that Jesus is the Christ the Messiah. In fact, he climaxes that, the climax of that part of his book is Peter's confession. Chapter 8, verse 29, that says, when Jesus asked Peter, who do you say that I am, Peter? Peter responds, you are the Christ. That's the climax of the first eight chapters of the book of Mark because his whole purpose is to show that Jesus is Messiah. In fact, later in the gospel, chapter 14 of Mark, when he's being tried and the high priest is pressing, he asks him, Are you the Christ? And what does Jesus say? I am. And you'll see me coming on the clouds. And so even Mark reminds us that Jesus is the Messiah. What about Luke? We've already covered one, cha- or one section in Luke, Luke chapter 2, verse 11. For today in the city of David there has been born to you a Savior, and he is Christ the Lord. He told us about the reaction of Simeon. He told us about the reaction of Anna the prophet, who both responded that this is Messiah. Luke even records the witness of an unlikely source, the demons. In chapter 4, verse 41, it says that when Jesus healed, the demons came out and and declared, you are the Son of God. But Jesus went, basically, I'll paraphrase, shut up, don't speak. And the text tells us, because they knew he was the Messiah. Even the demons knew that he was the Christ that had been promised in the Old Testament. So even Luke reminds us that Jesus is Messiah. What about John, the last gospel? Same thing. Chapter uh, chapter 1, verse 41, when he was talking about, or when he was recruiting his disciples, it says he found Andrew who then, Andrew went on and says, Andrew found first his own brother Simon, and he said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. Philip did something very similar. We're told in John chapter 1, verse 43, Philip found Nathanael, and he said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Basically, he says, we found the one Moses told us about. We found the Messiah. He's here. And it was enough for them to recruit their brothers. They were that convinced. You remember the story of the woman at the well. 
John chapter 4. Jesus is talking to her. And she says, I know that Messiah is coming. We expect him. He's the one they call the Christ. When that one comes, she said, he will declare all things to us. Jesus looked at her and he said, I who speak to you am he. I'm the Messiah. Chapter 11, verse 20. When Jesus is talking to Martha, we see the same thing. She's talking about Lazarus being dead. And if Jesus, if you would have been here, he wouldn't have died. And Jesus reminds her that he will be raised up at the last times. Why? Because he is the Messiah. So every one of the Gospels reflects Jesus' role as Messiah. So the good news is, everything God had promised from Genesis chapter 3 all the way through the exile, all the way into the New Testament, the very thing the Jews had been expecting for thousands of years came true on what we call Christmas Day, the birth of Christ. So the reality is that that's what Christmas is all about. It's not about just a little cute little baby in the manger. It's about God in flesh, the Messiah coming as a child to rescue and to redeem all of creation from our sin and our guilt, taking it upon his shoulders. One last passage, you all know this, John chapter 3, verse 16 and 17. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. For God didn't send his Son into the world to judge the world but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged, but he who does not believe has been judged already, because he was not or he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. That's what it's all about. Is it not? When we celebrate Christmas, what we're celebrating is the fact that God sent Christ. God sent his promised Messiah. And I tell you, when we look at the scriptures and we see God's redemptive plan, it all falls into place, doesn't it? Everything he says, he does. We're reminded as we looked in 1 Kings a number of times that we see God is faithful to his promises. That's repeated throughout. And we see that here. So as we celebrate this Christmas, let's remember that Christ isn't his last name. That's who he is. Christ is Messiah. So what we celebrate is God sending his Messiah for the purpose of saving us. Amen?